It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, January 4th, 2017, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show that 2016 just couldn't kill, no matter how hard it tried. On today's show, World Building. We'll talk about how comics and comic-related media create interesting, interconnected worlds for characters to exist in. It's a topic I think we can all agree is truly out of this world. There it is. All this plus our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm from St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. Okay. And Father Kyle, unfortunately, is not with us uh, today. He's uh, still suffering from a little bit of a bout of the flu. Uh, but uh, we, we send our prayers and good wishes to him, and I'm sure he'll be with us, uh, with us very soon. And in the meantime, we can, um, I don't know, say weird things about him. What would what would you like to say, Father Matt? Well, I, you know, I told him not to hunt in Siberia for wolves <laughs> um, underdressed, and you know, this is just that's it. Getting it desserts. That's how so. you that's how you get the flu right there. Is that that uh, inappropriate padding for wolf hunting? Also, I yeah. uh, have to say uh, we've we've had a, a little bit of an un, unexpected hiatus here because of uh, various scheduling conflicts and illness and other things that have happened. Uh, so we didn't mean to be away for so long, uh, but uh, we are back, folks. 2016 didn't take us as it took so many others. We are back uh, and looking forward to a wonderful rest of, of this season, season three of God and Comics. That brings us to our recommendation this week, and uh, I have the recommendation. My recommendation is one that I have been meaning to recommend for quite a while, but uh, other things have come up and, you know, wanted to get to those. But this is a book that I've enjoyed for a couple years now. And that is Lazarus by Greg Rucka, written by Greg Rucka with art by Michael Lark. Lazarus uh, from uh, Image. Lazarus is a dystopian future story. And, you know, the world is filled with dystopian future stories at this point. Uh, but in we're living in a dystopian future. Well, <laughs> th- that that is probably true. But in uh, in Rucka's version of it, in the Lazarus version of it, we don't know exactly what kind of events have taken place to lead to this. Obviously, there's been some sort of huge economic collapse in the world. Uh, it's not entirely clear what other things have happened in terms of you know war. or famine or any of these other sorts of things but what has taken place is that the world the nation states that we know of today have all fallen and they have been replaced by territories controlled by extremely wealthy families so there are 16 or so wealthy families that essentially own the world and they uh, they have certain accords between each other, and some of them are friendly, and some of them are enemies, and so forth. But they basically run the world, and they are the ones who have all of the power, all of the money, all of the resources. Now, within each of their territories, there are a tremendous number of people who live, and those people are divided into three categories. First of all, there are those who are members of the family, and those are the elite. 
Then there are those who uh, serve the family in some way. And those people get educated and, and have certain privileges because they serve the family. They're referred to as serfs. And then there are all the other people who live there, and they're referred to as the waste. And actually, as the book hops around from location to location, it'll tell you on each in each new scene, it'll tell you where, you know, where you're suddenly showing up. So here's the name of the town or whatever. It tells you which family territory you're within, and then it tells you the population. So it'll say population family, you know, three. Uh, population surf, 150. Population waste, 1,432,000, you know, whatever. So you get a, a clear idea of who's there. Now, uh, each of these families has its own economic system, its own various things that, you know, that they do, and they have their own military. Involved in the military for each of these families, each family has one what they call a Lazarus. And the Lazarus is like a super soldier. This is a person who, it's not that they can't die, they can die, but it's very hard for them to die, and they have the absolute top of the line in genetic engineering and various other components to them um, that make it so that they can be rebooted. If, you know, if they die in the field, they can be kind of brought back if it's within a certain amount of time. Um, you know, I mean, you could cut their head off or something, but if they just get shot or whatever, they can be brought back. Um, and so they're very hard to stop. And each family has one. And the story of, of Lazarus, while it tells us about the various families, it focuses in particularly on the Carlisle family and the Lazarus of the Carlisle family, whose name is Forever Carlisle. And in the case of the Carlisle family, she is actually a member of the family. She is the daughter of uh, the patriarch of the family, or so she believes. But it becomes clear very early, you know, by issue two, you, you find out that may not, in fact, be exactly true. Um, and so a lot of the story is her figuring out who she, she really is and, and kind of un, unraveling uh, the knots that have been created to keep her from knowing who she really is. This is a great story. I mean, it's it's dark, but it is filled with sort of interesting interconnecting webs of, of things that are going on. Rucka and Lark do a great job with the world building. And so you have sections that, uh, you know, there was a whole volume of it, for instance, that just dealt with the interrelationships between the families and how that worked. And, uh, you know, you just get a real sense of this is who, you know, what the world is like and how it how it works. Um, and the more you see that, the more it kind of sucks you into the story. Forever is a really interesting character. She is bright, but has been conditioned in such a way so that she doesn't really use her brain for anything but military strategy and as things go forward and she realizes more and more about who she really is and, and what the family has done in her name, it challenges her on some, some pretty deep levels. There's also a lot of interesting stuff in here that might be appealing to to people in terms of religion and seeing where religion fits into the world. It's, it's not a central theme, 
but it is something that runs through it. For instance, there's this group of nuns who travel across the borders between the families because they're considered to be impartial, uh, and so they come to, to give aid to those who are sick and dying and so forth. Well, you know, at, at some point, at least some of these nuns become involved in, in counterinsurgency and all of this kind of thing. Um, and so you have these kind of questions that come up about, well, where where would the the church fit into? I mean, this is something that I thought about. Where would the church fit into this world? How would we minister to those uh, who live in this condition? It, it deals a lot with who and what is a person, and you can see that from that family surf waste relationship. You know, what is it that makes a human being valuable? What is it that makes a human being matter? And while it's very different from the world that we are in now, it is not so far-fetched as to, to be, without, uh, be without being scary. I mean, we live in a, in a time in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and the divide is becoming ever, ever more expansive. And so, you know, while it is outside of, of our experience, it isn't that hard to look and see, you know, what, what would the world look like? if we pushed this to its logical extreme and the only people who mattered were members of a, of a wealthy family. So there's a lot of stuff to chew on in this series. And there are four volumes of, of the trade uh, that are out in paperback now, two volumes in, in hardcover. Uh, the fifth volume of the, of the paperback trade is supposed to be out at the end of February. It's available for pre-order now. But, you know, the way Image works, the, the, the number one, the first volume, is $9.99 cover price. It's a low cost for, uh, for entry into the series, and uh, I highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to the fifth volume when it comes out. What well, sounds very intriguing. I, I had never heard of it, so thank you for the recommendation. I'll, I'll have to jump on board with that. Ah, I stumped Father Matt. <laughs> Always makes me happy when I stump Father Matt. Very good. Well, now we turn to our main conversation, and our main conversation this week is on the topic of world building. And joining us to talk about that is our special guest today, Father Joel Scandrit. Father Joel is Assistant Professor of Historical Theology and Director of the Robert E. Weber Center at Trinity School for Ministry. He contributed to the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, and has edited a number of books for InterVarsity Press. Father Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Father Jonathan and Father Matt. It's great to be here. Now tell us a little bit, uh, for, for those who, who don't know you, although I, I gather, now were you one of uh, Father Matt's professors? Did that I happen? I was, though, um, because I'm a director of a center for spiritual formation, I don't do a lot of teaching. And Matt, were you in my my theology of middle earth course i i definitely was yeah yeah i took that as a, as a january term class and it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun i'm a lifelong uh, fan of both uh comics and the works of J.R.R. tolkien and the inklings in general so uh, they let me teach this uh seminar on the theology of middle earth and it was a great time and i hope to do it again sometime soon so, so tell us a little bit about your your interest in comics. What what were the comics that were kind of formative to you, and um, 
and that you gravitate towards. Sure. Yeah, I, I have been reading comics much of my life, although I've fallen off the continuities in recent years, but still dip in every now and then. I remember reading the first Wolverine issue when it came out back in, I think that was the late 70s. I've always liked, I've always been a fan of kind of the, the marginal anti-hero types like Moon Knight. Um, mm, oh, cool. That, that sort of figure. Tended to gravitate towards Marvel because it seemed like the kind of Hell's Kitchen type of hero was was more common in that universe, and that's certainly one I'm drawn to. I'm thrilled by the new series built around Hell's Kitchen that Netflix is doing, and mm-hmm. can't wait to see uh, more of that. I binged on the Luke Cage uh, uh, series just recently and, and loved that, and I, I like Daredevil too. Jessica Jones was all right, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that develops. But um, yeah, it was formed by those uh, sorts of uh, marginal figures. I don't know how else to describe them, how, how you describe those B or C list heroes in the Marvel Universe, but they were always the ones I gravitated to kind of underdog phenomenon and uh that's been a recurrent theme and there was always a kind of a vacillating between middle earth and the marvel universe (laughs) Uh, somewhere along the line as a kid growing up uh, i was trading one for the other dc never drew me as much because all the heroes were so epically powerful and uh I, i somehow didn't find that as interesting as the more kind of challenge of being a hero that you had with Spidey and some of the, the, the minor heroes there in the, in the Marvel Universe. So uh, that's kind of a gestalt of my background in the comic world. Well, we're, we're, uh, we're very glad to have you with us. And uh, you, you mentioned, and uh, Father Matt mentioned as well, the, the class you, you teach on um, world building and Middle Earth and uh, Tolkien and so forth, which is one of the reasons why uh, we we wanted to have you join us for this uh, particular program, and was hoping that we could start out by talking a little bit about what we mean when we say world building. Um, what is world building, and why is it a necessary thing to do? Right. Well, there's a lot of ways you could approach that. Uh, Tolkien's always been my touchstone for this. He focuses a lot on what uh, he calls sub-creation, which is world building. And he sees it as a universal human practice, right? Uh, all societies have their mythologies, and there's a way of, of shaping a mythological world that somehow comments on or reflects the, the uh, what we would call the real world, but has embedded in it certain values, certain transcendent kinds of meaning or purpose. And they may be moral values or they may be transcendent theological values of some kind but this is universal to human being and so he refers to human beings as sub-creators we're made in god's image he's a creator and so we're sub-creators and we do similar things in our own way Uh, so that's at least a start at the idea of world building and you can certainly see something like that going on in the comic world comic book universes as well right Mm mm-hmm I'm a big fan of sub-creation my, myself. I usually like to start with bread, and then I add maybe some turkey, some lettuce, uh, something like that. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to get into all of it. I don't want to give away any secrets. Uh, but uh, 
Father Matt, why do you think that world building is important for storytelling in a comic book uh, format as opposed to in any other format? One of the tips I, I once had when I, I met a, a, a comic book artist, um, he came to our art uh, at the art school that I studied at, Tyler School of Art, and his name was uh, Charles Burns. He's known for his kind of underground work. He does Black Hole and, and, and a lot of other great graphic novels. But um, I remember talking to him about my interest in comics, and he said, you know, uh, I'll give you a tip about breaking in uh, to the business as a comic book artist. He said, you know, a lot of young guys can draw these heroes, but what they really want to see is can you put this hero in a world? Can you draw New York City? Or can you draw Hell's Kitchen? Can you make that believable? I think that's true of, of, you know, comic book drawing, you know, um, but it, it's it's equally true of writing comic books. It's not just about the character. It's about the whole world that they live in. And so the first step in kind of creating a compelling story is, is, is to, to create a world. You need a canvas on which to play out these, these great uh, human dramas that we identify with so much. You need sort of a broad vision. For, for the world. I think that's especially true of, you know, comic books because you have these, you know, separate series. You have, you know, Batman, Superman, Aquaman, and there's something that transcends them all, and that is the world that they live in. And so I, I think um, DC and Marvel have been so successful because they've been able to create a world for all these heroes to operate in you know the marvel universe the dc universe and the possibility for characters and storylines within that universe i mean is endless i mean once you have the world you know it generates all sorts of ideas and new concepts i think that's really the uh, the key to how they've been able to to captivate audiences and they've been able to do it again with the films, the big breakthrough in superhero filmmaking has been that universe, that world building that that Marvel uh, was able to create with you know their first films. They established the world, and now it's just spinning off into all sorts of directions. And it's really a, a very generative kind of idea. You mentioned both DC and Marvel, but I think Marvel particularly went about this on purpose, mm-hmm. right? Like they created a universe, even, you know, going back into the 60s and 70s, they were purposely creating a, a universe within which all of these characters could intermingle. Whereas DC, although it certainly had some of that, even going back uh, into the golden era, so much of DC has been uh, expanded through acquisition, right? taking over one company and then another and and then having to add these figures in who were not created initially for this world. That, I think, sometimes has made it a little more difficult for DC to to have everything kind of flesh out and make sense. But then, of course, the problem with, with, with comics particularly, although I think this probably would extend to any kind of 
I don't know, soap opera or anything like that is you have to then be able to extend the stories of these characters over decades and decades and decades <laughs> where they're all eternally young. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, so then you get to uh, you get to a lot of heavy lifting on the world building side in order to figure out a way to make it make sense that all of these same characters are experiencing all of this stuff. I was watching when DC did its infinite earth crisis, right? I mean, you have part of this problem that you're talking about was this one temporary solution was to set up these parallel earths where, where things were allowed to happen that were different from other contexts. So that you'd keep things separate and things didn't get too messy, but even that became unsustainable after a while. And so you have this challenge of how, how do you bring unity to the thing, right? How do you keep all these storylines going and, and bring unity? And I don't know how many heroes they killed off in the process. But. Yeah, that's a great example, too. Yeah. I, I think the, that the original Crisis on Infinite Earths is a wonderful book, is one of, one of my favorite, I was going to say old stories. Obviously, it's not that old. It only goes back to the mid-'80s. But just a, just a wonderful kind of... Uh, tapestry of putting all these things together in the hopes of simplifying this thing that had gotten out of control with the whole like multiverse thing except as soon as they simplified it they realized that it didn't work and so of course the story of the next 30 years has been them putting the multiverse back together having obliterated it um with with the crisis but we're getting now we're getting into the weeds boy the nerds are really excited right now and the non-nerds are going, we have no idea. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, just to, to sort of simplify it, it all comes from this attempt to make a coherent universe that reflects our own world. I think that was originally the kind of strength of Marvel Comics, that they made this world that was more like ours. The superheroes had, like, personal problems and and so you know spider-man you know was a teenager he got picked on he had girl trouble and then the thing was a freak you know um the x-men were uh, a marginal class in society it became a way of dealing with real life problems uh, through fantasy and projecting you know the, the our own struggles onto another world i think that's it is one of the reasons why we write fiction. We write fiction in order to kind of work through our, you know, social and personal, psychological, spiritual issues on another plane. It, it's a way in which human beings have always searched for meaning and purpose through art, through fiction, uh, through music even. I mean, this is all part of our role as as you know, as Father Joel said, as, as sub-creators. It's also interesting the way Marvel chose to have so many of these storylines actually take place. There's no Gotham, right? It's New York City or it's L.A., right, or even Chicago. It's not Gotham or Metropolis in the Marvel Universe. It's actual cities that are in our world, and, and you know, presumably the action takes place there. So that gives another layer of realism to the Marvel project, um, at least from that point. I, I, that's 
another reason why I was always drawn to, to, to those storylines, because they seem to take place in my world, right? In some sense. Although, as we've, as we've noted before, uh, Marvel does real American cities, but fake foreign countries. So you get <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wakanda and, uh, yeah, right, you know. Right, that's true. You start off with, with just making sort of a fictional universe, but then all of a sudden you have, you know, new countries. You know, Wakanda is where the Black Panther is. It, it, right. It's the king of Wakanda. Uh, that, that Varia is the imaginary Eastern European nation uh, that Dr. Doom right. is the a dictator over. But, uh, I mean, even more than creating... Imaginary countries, the Marvel Universe, as the stories have unfolded, I mean, it's become like cosmic. Yeah. So, not only did you create imaginary uh, countries, but you've also created like separate universes that are an addendum to it. You've created uh, other galaxies and planets. You've created like gods you know that they 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 work the asgardian gods into it um they even have a kind of prehistory right in the marvel universe kind of a a, a creation narrative and right. and and and, and, and a prehistory the larger the body of work becomes over time the more the layers of complication work in so that everything can be connected to everything else. But I think the larger question is, why do we want it to be connected to everything else? Why do we even care that it's connected? And I think the answer for that has to come back to the fact that as human beings, we need narrative as a way of making sense of the world. And this is something that makes us different from, you know, I don't think that my cat spends a tremendous amount of time trying to put together the pieces of her own story. But I do, and most other human beings do. And I think that this is part of part of what comes to us from being made in the image of God, is this, this kind of hunger and necessity for a narrative to emerge out of the facts. And there is a, there's, sort of the simple level of this is what gives stories their stakes, right? So if you get if you have a story and the story is here are two characters. This is Bob and this is Jim. Bob shoots Jim. Jim is dead. And that's the end of the story. You go, okay, well that was a pretty boring story, but you know, we'll move on. Whereas if you go, this is Bob and this is Jim. They live at the following address. They have been friends for 35 years. They have the following things going on, you know, and you kind of tie in the stakes. So narrative is extremely important for giving stakes to a story. It's the reason why you care about what happens to characters in a story. And it's important to build a world so that you can have a coherent narrative, which means that the world has to have rules, right? It has to make sense, which doesn't mean that you can't have fantastic things happen within it, but they have to be things that are not contradictory to themselves in order for them to happen. Uh, You can have a Superman character who can fly and lift buildings and so forth, as long as this is what happens to Kryptonian people when they uh, come into the sun and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, what you can't do is have, uh, you know, one issue where Superman can walk through walls and the next issue where he can't or, uh, or something like that. Or Superman is simultaneously a human being and not a human being or, you know, something like that. 
Um, this is part of the same reason why we can talk about the narrative of salvation. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a pretty fantastic thing, but it doesn't break the narrative of the world that God has created in the same way that it would if we said something like Jesus is both love and hate, right? That can't be true because that's not, not only is that contradictory, it's nonsense. Um, And, you know, we can't have nonsense. Um, And so the rules of world building help the narrative to work by making sure that it is a, it is a narrative that can in fact make sense even if it's fantastical. Yeah, this is something I teach in my Tolkien seminar using a wonderful essay by Tolkien called Unfairy Stories, where he kind of unpacks this idea of human beings as subcreators and subcreators of secondary worlds. And he asks this question: How how does a secondary world make sense? How can it have meaning? How can it function in this way that you're describing? And it's because there's an overarching narrative that holds it all together. It's a consistent narrative. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And all the smaller stories find their place within that larger narrative. So, you know, Tolkien, when he's starting out, he's he's making up stories about the Shire, but then he has this character, Tom Bombadil, he has this other character, Treebeard the Ent, and they're not part of a coherent story. But as he develops this, this larger narrative, they start to find their place within it, and it all starts to fit together into one grand narrative that's coherent, and it makes sense. And in the same way, you know, that there has to be consistency. So one of, one of the great uh, things I remember about that essay is he says, you can have a green sun. It's fine to have a world that has a green sun as long as the way that world works is consistent and grants it a sense of reality and coherence. If it's inconsistent, like you were saying with Superman or or whatever, then it makes no sense to us. It doesn't have the ring of truth about it. But as long as there's this overarching narrative that does grant truth, and of course, ultimately for him... That narrative is the Christian narrative. It's the narrative of God's creating and redeeming work in this in the world. That's what gives the ring of truth to, for example, Middle Earth or something like that. You know, one of the things that'll sometimes drive me nuts with uh, comic book stories, you know, thinking along those lines, is when you have characters flipping back and forth between being good and evil too frequently. I think we, you know, we can allow for some degree of that, right? We expect there to be instances of evil characters who become good or good characters who become evil. But when they're flipping so often that you cannot keep track of whether or not one is good and one is evil, it becomes really, really hard to follow, I find. Oh, absolutely. I mean, then you start getting in the realm of nonsense. I mean, unless there is some reason... Like they have some dramatic split personality or whatever, uh, such you know inconsistencies in in um, personality just break the illusion. They ruin things, right? So, what does it take if if we want to build a good world for uh, a comic or for anything else? We've already talked about wanting to avoid things that would be contradictory or uh, changes that don't don't make any sense but what what would we need to do in order to have a good fleshed out world 
I think someone who has been especially successful at, at doing this in recent years is J.K. Rowling. I, I'm not like a, a, a Potter fan. My, I, I mean, I tried to read the first Harry Potter book back when it first came out, and I, I just didn't connect with it. But my wife is a huge fan. I mean, she's read the books like, you know, eight times or at least. So when I geek out about, you know, comic books... You know, she could geek out about Harry Potter, you know. And what I've been impressed with is just how well developed the world is. In order to make, like, a really compelling world, I think you really need to develop, like, the kind of history behind it. I went to see the the movie recently, The Fantastic Beast, with my wife. And that's sort of like it's in the same universe as Harry Potter. But I was really intrigued by it. It all started off like apparently one of the textbooks that the kids use at Hogwarts was written by this character. And so they just delved into that whole world and like who was this guy and what's the story behind this textbook and everything. And I think that's the sort of imaginative exploration that really draws you into a a, a a universe i mean and then there's like the little critters and all the beast and everything that they made that exist in this fantasy world that just it's an attention to detail i mean tolkien i mean he made up his own languages i mean right. he, it wasn't enough just to write some fancy elvish words i mean he like actually invented it right. <laughs> you know i mean it takes a certain kind of obsessiveness <laughs> like that to really make a world compelling, um, a, a world that you could like live in imaginatively. Yeah. Every time I'm drawn imaginatively into a universe like that, it's always because what you said, Father Matt, it, it's, it's this attention to detail. It can be detail that has to do with the kind of mechanics of things, right? Or it can be detail that has to do with how it matches with actual lived experience. If this, if the characters are going through traumatic experiences, are they engaging them and responding to them in ways that are actually compelling, actually do seem like they really do match reality as we know it? And if it's not, you know, then there's this sense of distance, like slippage, right? That kind of, it doesn't quite get traction imaginatively. I've been watching this uh, series called The Expanse. I don't know if you guys are aware of it or not. No. Sci-fi series. Apparently based on a series of, of novels that's quite good. And it's, it's all been way off in the future. And Earth and the Moon are one political power. And Mars is another political power. These are all human, human societies, but they're in tension with one another. And then those who live in the, the uh, asteroid belt, the belters, are a third power. They're kind of the central story. But it's so well done in terms of politics, the kind of economics and politics of these various tensions. It's brilliant that it's so captivating, and I find myself right there, you know. I think what, you, uh, what, what we're saying here about detail is very good and very helpful. I, I uh, was an English uh, and creative writing major as an undergraduate, and I remember an, a writer who came to, to speak in class at one point. I'm, I'm actually blanking on his name at the moment, but I remember him talking about the process of writing. You have to know your character and what has happened in their world with lots of detail that will never make it into your story. 
In other words, you you know, you may never talk about the history of this guy with his family of origin and he's got parents who are divorced and uh, he grew up in Brooklyn or whatever it is. But you need to know that stuff so that as you're creating the character, he becomes a more real character because that stuff is just in the background for him. And I, I think that's what makes some of these stories really great. It's not that they shove the thing down your throat. This is why I love Lazarus, which you know I recommended earlier in the episode, has wonderful world building to it where it, you see the different relationships between these different families who control this world, you know, control the world in this post-apocalyptic reality. But what you never get is a place where they go, here is the story of how the post-apocalyptic reality came to pass, right? And, you know, here are the rules for how we dictate. They just do it. They just do it. And you pick it up almost by osmosis as you go through it um, because it's clearly there in the background. But what doesn't work is you start going along and you just figure I'll just make it up as I go along. And then you end up with a really crazy set of rules for your world because you create left turns out of right whenever you can't figure out how to write out of the plot hole. Trouble with thinking this way is that anytime you come across a story that doesn't quite close the gap for you, then there's this sense of slippage and it happens too much in comics because as we've been talking about, there, there are all these little mini stories going on within this larger fabric of whichever comic book universe you're in, and you have these multiple add-ons that we talked about, especially with DC. That's the hazardous part about it, is that kind of sudden event that doesn't doesn't come from anywhere. It's just kind of thrown in as a deus ex machina, right? Without, <laughs> without any real connection to anything at all. So. Well, the, the geeks will keep you honest. They always will, because they will remember all the details. and. Any violation of continuity will be savagely criticized. Um, that's what they're there for. That's part that's of the right. ecosystem yes. of, of the subcreation. Yes. <laughs> that's good. You know, we've, we've been saying all along that there is a relationship, I think, between our being made in the image of God and our need to create narrative, that that's part of where that comes from, and it's one of the things that differentiates us from uh, other creatures. But I would just like to throw it out there. How does world building in fiction and particularly in comics, how does that relate to the actual world building that God has done by creating the world and the universe and uh, everything that is in it? Again, not to go crazy with the Tolkien references, but he's kind of my touchstone for so much of this. He, And he's not the only one. He talks about how great fiction can draw you back in. Great story can reveal to you things about yourself and about the real world that you hadn't perceived before in such a way that you re-engage or, or continue to engage with the world in a better way, in a more wise way, in a more godly way, ultimately. So I think there's a kind of a built-in kind of reflective quality to the way we do story. All the great stories are stories that somehow give have explanatory power in this world, right? Um, and have an impact the way we think about what it means to be human and what it means to live in the world. So there's this inevitable connection, and Tolkien talks about human beings as myth-makers. That's what we are. We're myth-makers. 
that's how we think about imaginatively what it means to be in the world and, and make sense of it and continue to engage it. I think it's part of what enables us to have a vision for what the future could be, how the future could be different than the present, right? How we could think about change and plan for, for doing things differently than we have in the past. That's that human capacity to, as it were, tra transcend ourselves by our imaginations and see the possibilities of things that other creatures simply can't. Uh, mm. The theologian uh, N.T. Wright, great Anglican theologian, it writes about the history of salvation being kind of like a Shakespeare play. You know, there's always five acts in the Shakespeare play. He says it, it, it's as if we're like in act four, and it's our job to live out act five. But we live out act five in, in such a way that's intelligible to what has come before that the narrative thus far defines how we live the rest of the story and it needs to be intelligible just like we've been saying um, it needs to carry forth the great themes that are the storyteller has already written into the story you know just that way of thinking you know of of living life as as a story you know and, and one that uh is is compelling and meaningful I, you know and i and i read another book by uh by uh what oh the guy who wrote blue like jazz um donald miller Don, donald miller he wrote a book about making a movie of blue like jazz and and right. and, and, and what that experience was like thinking like well you know, the experience of thinking about his life as a movie and, 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 and what that did for him spiritually, sort of like, well, you know, what is the big theme of my life? You know, what are the major events, you know, and, and how to make that story meaningful? You know, and, and, and human beings are the only ones who really know how to, to live a meaningful life. I mean, um, like you say, your, your cat doesn't think about Right. The, the meaning of, of her story or where it's going or, you know, when when it's all over, is she going to look back and say, that was really meaningful? <laughs> um, we, we do, they just don't do that. But as, you know, creatures made in God's image, we do. That's good. Just to add a, as a coda onto that, I've, I've been bringing this up a little bit in my preaching and teaching lately. Um, but uh, Tim Tim Keller in The Reason for God talks about how this Russian cosmonauts in the early 60s came back from space and announced that God clearly did not exist because they went to space and they didn't find him there. And uh, Keller says that C.S. Lewis responded to this. I've never found Lewis's actual writing about this. I've just I've just found Keller talking about it. But uh, according to Keller, according to Lewis, Lewis's response to this was uh, to say that this is as silly as Hamlet looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his castle. <laughs> but the, the, the great thing about that is, you know, the only way that we really understand as characters in a narrative of the narrative of our own lives and our own world, the only way that we really can understand the author of the narrative 
and particularly for us as self-centered creatures to understand that the author is not us. The only way is for the author himself to write himself into the story. And, you know, there is a certain thrill that comes with that. I mean, this is, I'm sure, part of the the joy for Stan Lee of doing all those cameos and all of the Marvel things uh, that he does. But that essentially is the story of the Christian God. It is one of not just building a world, but writing himself into the story so that we who are in that world can know him in in a way that we would not otherwise. You know, Dorothy Sayers uh, yeah. does something along this line, as I recall. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, with, with, her, mind with of the her, um, her mystery novel, uh, her, yeah, um, The Detective. Well, no, it's a book called The Mind of the Maker. It's the idea that God, you know, God writes himself into the story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, friends, there's so much more that I'm sure that we could say, uh, and I hope to hear from some of you about what you would say about this. You know, we are trying to build a world ourselves, a world of social media, and uh, God in Comics is building that world in two places particularly. Uh, One of them is in the larger multiverse that is Facebook, and the other is in the strangely limited set of rules that govern the land known as Twitter. And so you can come and visit us there. Go go see us at facebook.com slash godandcomics or tweet at us. We are at godandcomics. Tell us what you think, uh, what your thoughts on world building are, and be sure while you're there to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Okay, so Father Joel has agreed graciously to join us for This or That. And Father Matt, I believe you have have the reins this, this week, so take it away. So, who has the better hip-hop album in 2016? Chance the Rapper or A Tribe Called Quest? You'd have a better shot at getting a good answer from me if you'd asked who had the better album in 2001. Uh, (laughs) 2016, I'm not sure I could tell you who had the best album of any genre. But... um, I have not heard Chance the Rapper. Um, I have heard several of the tracks off of A Tribe Called Quest's newest release, and I did see their performance on Saturday Night Live, and I, I, I have enjoyed that so far. It was it was 18 years wait for that album to come out, and uh, it was worth the wait. They uh, they they sound just like classic Tribe, and yet still with a with you know it doesn't sound like they're trying to mimic their old style, but they're doing something new. So you know, Tribe Called Quest. Okay, cool. Well, you should definitely check out the coloring book, though. I mean, I, I, I got, I'm pretty excited about it. It's got, a, it's got a lot of gospel uh, elements to it, which I, I really appreciate. Okay, the next one is for our guest, Father Joel. So this one, who would you rather have tea with if you could, you know, go back in time or whatever? T.F. Torrance, <laughs> the Scottish theologian, or J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, that's a that's a brutal and vicious question. Father I know Matt. both of those are close <laughs> to your heart. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Father Matt has uh, touched upon uh, two of my heroes of the 20th century, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, but also uh, this wonderful ecumenical theologian named Thomas Forsyth Torrance, whose works I highly commend anyone. That is tough, but I think I would I would enjoy personally hanging out with the Hobbit himself, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. I would be less intimidated and have a, a better time going that route than, than the other. I think T.F. Torrance would be pretty daunting to have tea with. Yeah, I'd be pretty terrified. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's pretty daunting just to read his stuff. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, um, Jonathan, the fast and furious or the young and the restless? Fast and the furious, obviously. <laughs> What other answer could I give? You know, we did not we did not follow through on it. Um, we actually failed miserably. But my wife and I did agree at some point early on. I can't remember if we were married yet or not, but we agreed that we would go out and watch every new Vin Diesel movie as it as it released. Um, well, you're and, uh, for punishment, huh? So I saw the pacifier in the theater. Um, is that a, does that include the uh, the? Um, uh, Pitch Black. Um, well, Pitch Black is Chronicles of Riddick. Of Riddick Chronicles uh, of Riddick, I think, came out. Pitch Black was had already long been out by the time that we uh, that we got together. But um, we did go back and watch some of those. But we, you know, I the Fast and Furious movies are, I, I I can say nothing bad about them because here's the thing: they are exactly what they tell you they're going to be. They're fast, they're, they're fast and they're furious, right? There is no illusion that this is going to be a deep story. They're like, here, we're going to show you cool-looking car chase scenes. And that's exactly what they give you. I think my favorite thing in one of the films that we saw, um, and I cannot tell you one from the other because they are all the same film, but uh, one of the films we saw had that had The Rock in it Dwayne the Rock Johnson. My wife and I remarked to each other at some point in watching that that he is such a bad actor that there is actually a point in that film where they show a still photo of him and he is acting <laughs> poorly in the still photo. So, and yet I still enjoyed the movie. So, there you, there go. you go. Okay, so speaking of um unfortunate um cinematic events Father Joel, which would you rather eliminate from our universe's continuity? Oh, no. The Star Wars prequels or that awful Hobbit trilogy? Uh, <laughs> uh, they both deserve to be completely erased from all human memory. <laughs> but uh, just because I care about Middle Earth so much more, I would say let's get rid of the Hobbit debacle uh i care less about uh george lucas's secondary world uh, okay. so father jonathan who played the better 90s genie shaquille o'neal in shazam or sinbad in shazam the correct answer is barbara eden <laughs> Barbara Eden will always be. And I, I'm absolutely certain that Barbara Eden's I Dream of Jeannie is not a false memory. That, that, is, that is absolutely true. 
Okay, uh, Father Joel, here's a, here's a little bit more of a serious question. The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander. Yeah. Or A Wrinkle in Time by Le Engel. Oh, boy. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. It's stumped again. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with The Book of Three. I'm going to stick with my, uh, my favorite I genre. I, I, I think you're right about it. I mean, I love A Wrinkle in Time, but you know, I grew up in the same neighborhood as Lloyd Alexander. Did you really? Yeah, and, and, I, and I met him, and he wow. was a really cool guy, and I, I, I love those books. You yeah, know, I, I read those books actually before I read The, the Lord of the Rings, and, and they, you know, they really captivated me when I was yeah. you know, a young kid. So, Father Jonathan, Turkish Delight, or rapper's delight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I would, you know, rapper's delight is probably what I would go with anyway, but particularly since the holidays have just passed and I, you know, I need to get back into shape and start eating properly again. Uh, I think I'll, I'll go with, uh, with rapper's delight. Plus, uh, Grandmaster Flash, I believe, I can't remember if he was born on Christmas or New Year's Day. It's one or the other. But as as Chris Rock tweeted several years ago, Grandmaster Flash's birthday is a national holiday that we have off. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. Yeah, I mean, have you ever had Turkish Delight? I believe I have. It's been a long time, it's, though. It's, yeah. it's pretty gross. Oh, good. The good. You've you've only had bad Turkish delight, then, Father Matt. Okay. Well, I, it was like Jello with like powder on. I it. I tend to associate it in my mind with the White Witch too, so that yeah. probably yes. doesn't help. Well, maybe I need to try the good Turkish delight. Yeah, the find kind some of high quality Turkish delight, and you might think otherwise. To make you like sell out your brothers and sisters That's to right. an evil witch. That's right. Don't, just say no, kids. <laughs> just say no. Just say no to Turkish delight. Yes. Um, okay, where are we? <laughs> oh, uh, okay, uh, Father Joel, we just uh, celebrated this past uh, Sunday. Um, it, it, is that feast the feast of the circumcision, or is it the feast of the holy name? Uh, I thought it was the feast of the holy name. <laughs> But I wasn't paying attention, so <laughs> uh, my church told me it was the feast of the Holy Name. So. It is that way on the on the Episcopal calendar. Yeah, yeah. Father Jonathan, you have an opinion about this? As I told my folks when I preached on this, the feast of the Holy Name is really just a genteel way of saying the feast yeah. of the circumcision. <laughs> so you know, because we don't like the idea of talking about something that makes schoolboys snicker in church. Right. Um, but there we are. Well, um, Father Jonathan... I'll tell you this, though. My sermon on the circumcision was a cut above the rest. So. <laughs> well, you know, Father Jonathan pointed out, and I thought this was endlessly hilarious, that there is one hymn for the Feast of the Circumcision in the 1940 hymnal. And the... The author of that hymnal is is a fellow named Crotch. That's right, yeah. <laughs> author of that hymn, it's the, the the one hymn for the circumcision is by Crotch. 
You can't make this stuff up. Okay, now we're really getting... Uh... <laughs> this is a family program, so we'll... Family friendly. Okay, right. and I, I'll give the last one to you too, Joel. Um, Bilbo Baggins or Frodo? Oh, well, Frodo. Frodo lives. Yeah, Frodo. Bilbo's not really a Christ figure in the same way as Frodo, so... <laughs> All right. How about Elijah Wood or a sock puppet with eyes? <laughs> big, Anyone? Big, big lustrous big eyes. Big saucer eyes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you, uh, Father Joel, for coming on the program today and for um, being silly with us. We appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And that's going to do it for us today. We're really glad that you all tuned in. We're looking forward to the rest of our schedule in 2017 and beyond. If you'd like to listen to the program again or to catch up with some links to some of the rad stuff that we talked about today, go on over and check out the show page on godandcomics.com. It has a lot of really interesting information and, and, and stuff there. And, and then you can you know link to us and, and put, put that up on your social media and all that good stuff. I hope that you will. God and Comics is subscribable through iTunes. And while you were on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind rating the program and uh, or giving it a review, we would love that. It really helps other people to find the show. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this moment, is by Father Paul Wheatley, whose idea of world building involves gluing back together a globe that he broke some years ago. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya. <laughs> <laughs>